It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. The Guy Benson Show Sunday Replay. The week's most interesting interviews with senators, commentators, and newsmakers. Giving you a replay just in case you missed it. The Guy Benson Show. Joining us now is U.S. Senator Tim Scott, Republican, South Carolina, author of the book Opportunity Knocks. He serves on multiple committees, the Finance Committee, the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs, Small Business Committee. He's a busy guy, but he's made some time for us today. Happy New Year, Senator. Great to have you back. Good morning, Guy. Thank you very much. Happy New Year to you and happy hour. That's, I love it. This is a happy yeah, hour. Exact, exactly right. You have a good Christmas. You have a good holiday season. I did. I had the privilege of spending time with my family. My nephew came home. It's always an exciting opportunity to, to spend time with your family and remind you why we love our country and, and love our communities. Grateful to have you here. I want to ask you, you're running for re-election this year, and you have said in the past that if you win, it would be your last term in the Senate. Two questions. Number one, what is your overall assessment of the political environment in this country heading into the election year since you're up this cycle? And number two, if you're still committed to that, this is my last six-year term if I win, what made you decide that? Well, the current political environment, in my opinion, is polarizing at best. The challenge that we see in the current uh, political environment in America is one that focuses too much on politicians and too little on Americans. Uh, one of the reasons why I decided to run for re-election is I wanted to make sure that we keep our, the main thing the main thing, and that is making sure that the American dream is alive, it is healthy, and it is achievable for the average person in this country. My life story speaks to the fact that not only is this the greatest nation ever designed, on God's green earth, but it keeps getting better. The American dream is more achievable for more Americans than when I was a kid, and that is a blessing to the leaders that went before me. I believe in term limits, and so while I am thankful that the good Lord and the people of South Carolina have given me an opportunity to serve this great nation, I do believe that we have to clear the way for the next person to come into office, and I'm hoping that the people of South Carolina will allow me to serve one more term before they make that decision. And because of that, I've got a laser focus on what I believe restores hope and creates opportunities. Hope requiring work, by the way, because I think people need a plan, a paycheck, and a purpose in order to achieve their greatest dreams and ambitions. And if we do that, then I will have served this nation and, frankly, trying to pay it forward for those people who will come behind us and experience what America really is, a free market economy with strong education that levels the playing field. That's how we make America domestically the, the greatest story on earth. I've seen some of these polls. I'm sure you have as well. You are one of, if not the most popular U.S. senator with your constituents in the country out of 100, which is impressive. Now, I'm not asking you a question just to butter you up or to have you brag on yourself, but I'm genuinely curious, in the polarized age, that you just described, what is your approach to politics that might help explain why you have been successful and why your constituents really appreciate the job you're doing and your approach to the job? Well, thank you, Guy. I, I will say my approach to the job and hopefully why the people of South Carolina have allowed me to continue to serve is because I really believe that I am called uh, to serve them. 
uh, I am not their leader unless you believe that leadership is servant servant leadership first. And that is a paradigm that I see my incredible responsibility to, to the American people and to South Carolinians specifically. And as I look at an agenda that focuses on what they need, I, I focus on the fact that we should live within our means because ultimately there's nothing compassionate about extending benefits to people at the expense of the next generation. I believe that one of the ways that we take care of America's future is by taking care of America's kids now. That means they need to be in school, and their parents deserve a voice at what happens, and they deserve to be able to choose the school of their choice. I believe that whether you're a rural American in uh, Cottageville, South Carolina, or, or McCormick, South Carolina, or whether you're in the inner cities of Columbia, Greenville, or Charleston, we should see you the same. We should believe that greatness and the seeds of it are within you and then give you the ability to fail or succeed based on your efforts. I don't see America through the prism of color. I see, the, I see America through the prism of opportunity. I've been afforded that by good people who happen to be white and good people who happen to be black. I've been afforded that by Republicans and Democrats. So I believe that the conservative message that we espouse actually works because there's proof in the pudding, not just in my life or Ben Carson's or in yours, Guy, but the fact of the matter is that America's greatness can be measured by the exceptional people who are really ordinary folks doing extraordinary things given that extraordinary opportunity by those who went before. A couple questions here on policy. Last time we spoke, if I recall correctly, you were still hopeful that you could get a deal done with your Senate colleague, Cory Booker, and the Democrats on police reform. Yes. That, unfortunately, did not work out. I know you worked very hard on it, but eventually you had to walk away from the bargaining table. If you could explain in a nutshell why you were unable to reach a bipartisan agreement, and then relatedly... The reason that you were having bipartisan talks is because the Senate Democrats insisted on filibustering your previous bill, saying what this was back when they were in the minority, they would not even debate the bill that you put forward, which I think was a totally sensible, at least a starting point. They would not even debate it. They filibustered it. Now they want to get rid of the filibuster, a tool that they used exclusively and repeatedly for years. Now it's a threat to democracy or something because they're in the majority. If you can just touch on both of those points, the substance on police reform and what they're doing now and the games they're playing on the filibuster. Well, no, number one, Guy, you, you, hit the, you, you distilled the, the, the most important point, which is the hypocrisy of the left as it relates to the filibuster. Now, somehow, some way, the filibuster is a racist relic. Well, that racist relic was used against police reform. In other words, it was used against the most marginalized communities where we could have improved the quality of the training for the officers, the funding for, for body cameras. They, they rejected that. So they rejected helping marginalized communities that are consistently majority-minority. So the hypocrisy of their current debate on the filibuster can, see, can be manifested in their rejection of a conversation about a bill that would improve the quality of the lives and the, the quality of the outcome for our most important uh, marginalized communities. Number two, why did it fail? This is where the rubber meets the road on police reform. I believe that the best should wear the badge and we should fund the training necessary to keep the high quality response where it is. 
they wanted to defund the police. And I say that for this reason. There were 11 sections of the bill where the left wanted to make departments ineligible for grant money, that is synonymous with reducing funding or defunding the police. And the second thing they wanted to do was to create a nationalization of local police by the way they use the accreditation process. I am not in favor of having a small town with 10, employee, 10 employees and eight officers have the same requirements as the Chicago police with thousands of officers. It doesn't make any sense. One size fits all is wrong because we have to understand the criminal behavior in local communities. We have to re understand the response times and the locations of the, the police departments and the number of jurisdictions in one county. Now, what was county. their response to that? With, with all respect to, to some of the folks on the other side, it seemed like you were having pretty productive conversations for a while. The points that you're making here are just totally rational. They are not sounding at all partisan or ideological to me. It's just like, hey, here are some realities. Did they have pushback that was substantive or was there just an ultimate inability to meet in the middle or a meeting of the minds here where they had, I guess, an agenda that they were not willing to step away from? Their agenda, and I think perhaps well-intended in getting reform done, included reforms that are not in the best interest of officers or the communities where they serve. They were more interested in handcuffing the officers than handcuffing criminals. That is just, we can see the result of that, by the way, guys, throughout the country where crime is exploding and the communities of color are asking for more officer presence with fewer people. When my house was broken into as a kid, the one thing that we thanked God for were officers of integrity who showed up and cared about us. Every single day, the days I've done ride-alongs with officers, I respect and appreciate that people have a mission to run into danger when everybody else is running out. And without that as a part of the solution, without that respect for the officer, it really is hard to find common ground on the jugular issues of funding the training we want and making sure that each jurisdiction decides the quality of their officers and, frankly, the, the amount of money they have to spend on the officers. That, we can't break that in order to achieve some utopian outcome that isn't possible without local control. And Senator, I am opposed to that. Senator Tim Scott, my guest, a South Carolina Republican. We're up on a break. We'll take it very quickly. Come right back with our guest on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Yesterday we had Senator Rick Scott of Florida. Today we have Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. Very happy to have him along. And Senator, a few more questions from me here. You talk a lot about opportunity, the American dream. In fact, you did earlier in our discussion here today. There are a lot of Americans who are worried about that, and they don't feel like that is their reality right now. The costs of things are going up. They feel like the government is not meeting their needs um, and is not getting out of the way in a lot of cases when they ought to. President Biden, you gave the response to his joint session address last year. We remember some of the reaction that you got, some really vitriolic stuff from some on the left, including some racist stuff. 
That president now has a 60% disapproval rating on the economy. That's a new CNBC poll out this week starting the new year. He's at 56% disapproval overall. On pocketbook issues, it's even worse, 66% disapproval. What's your read on the Biden presidency thus far and how that plays in to the national mood, including what will certainly, on some level at least, impact your reelection race? Well, there's no doubt, Guy, that when you look at this administration, you have to give them an F for leadership, an F on the economy, an F on bringing the country together, an F on health care and COVID response. Listen, this is a president who says we had a successful withdrawal from Afghanistan and we left Americans without our military leadership in place. We saw 13 amazing military uh, individuals lose their lives, in my opinion, unnecessarily. We, we've seen a literally a shutdown of our economy based on too much money driving up demand with a limited supply. What they don't understand about inflation is puzzling in, to me and perplexing because the inflation that we're seeing today, A, it's not transitory. Finally, we, we figured that out. B, it is caused by government sending too much money into an already hot economy, which causes it to overheat. It overheats by these examples. Number one, gas prices. They were less than $2 in 2020, December. They're now close to $3. That's a 70-plus percent increase in the cost of gas. We're looking at the reality that utilities in your house are up 30% food, whether it's meat, fish, or fruit, all up clothing, shoes. Why? Because the Biden administration has decided to pass a $1.9 trillion COVID relief package with only 1% for uh, COVID and 10% for COVID-related health, so 90% for their utopian wish list that leads us towards socialism. All that extra money. Yeah, we don't have tests, right? They spend all this money, $2 trillion. $2 trillion on COVID, quote-unquote, and we have a testing shortage in 2022. 1% on vaccines, 10% on COVID-related health, and obviously $1.99 on tests because literally you can't find one. Uh, And the ones you can find, according to Walmart and other stores, are going up in price. This is literally mismanaging COVID. And President Biden said on the campaign trail, trust me, American people, this will be gone. No one should be president if there's 200,000 deaths. I wish we could just replay everything he said on the campaign trail, and it would help us secure new leadership in the House and the Senate. And I think it would pave a way for the American people to have a contrast between what the candidate said and what the candidate did. Oh, yeah. And there's a big one. There's a very profound contrast, especially on that issue. It looks like for now, at least, Build Back Better, even trillions more, is dead. Maybe not fully dead. There's always a zombie effect unless Republicans win in 2022. Then it will truly be gone. But Joe Manchin, your colleague on the other side, said he hasn't even spoken with the White House about negotiations since he made an announcement that he was against Build Back Better. That, to me, is another hopeful sign. Finally, Senator Scott, last question. Tomorrow marks the one-year anniversary of what I view as a very dark day, a very disturbing day in our nation's capital, January 6th, the Capitol riot. I just wonder, as a public servant, a member of the U.S. Senate, a Republican, what are your big lessons from that day? What should we think about tomorrow 
in your view, as we look back at what happened a year ago? Well, God, let me make this personal first on January 6th and what we should, the lessons we should take from it. Number one, I watched bloodied police officers come into the room where they had secured senators. They were out there fighting to make sure that we were safe. We should all stop and thank God that men and women put on a blue uniform to protect citizens throughout this country, and no better example of that was on January 6th. Number two, the fact that we have a great republic was demonstrated on the resolve of January the 6th. And number three, I have more confidence in the American people than I've ever had. Uh, We continue to rally after a crisis. And the rally we did and rally we will. So frankly for me, lots of lessons 700 arrests is another great lesson to learn that when you break the law, there are consequences. And and so I think that we should take a serious look at January the 6th. I know I have. I know I was in the building. I know the the thoughts I had on that day. I know rolling my sleeves up and looking for a weapon to defend myself was a reality. I blame the people who came in and nobody else. So I think if we just remember that we have been given the gift of the most advanced citizenship on earth, we have to make sure that we defend it in the right way, that we will be preserving the, the America that we love and the America that we can trust for the next generation. U.S. Senator Tim Scott, Republican South Carolina, up this year for re-election. Senator, we always appreciate your time. We look forward to our next talk. Thanks so much for dropping by. Happy New Year again. Thank you, guys. Happy New Year. That was this week's edition of the Guy Benson Show Sunday Replay. For more Guy Benson Show, go to GuyBensonShow.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.